All right, let's go Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. The reason for that is super simple. Um, we, uh, as a church, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of super important stuff, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We, we wholeheartedly, unabashedly, full mission want people to know God like that's what we're about here and so if his word is the way that he makes himself known or the primary way that he makes himself known then it's really you know a bad idea to walk out the door here and say I've never read the Bible I don't own one I don't know what to do like we can send you home with a paperback Bible today and start reading it and I'll call that a win Um, God will use that in a big big way Romans chapter um, so we're walking through a series that we're calling Just and Justifier. It's a, it's a long series that we've been working through the book of Romans or, or Paul's letter to the church at Rome. It's a letter that, um, to a church that Paul had never been to at this point in his life story. He's never spent any time there. He will one day get to spend a lot of time in Rome. Uh, he is uh, uh, years later going to be arrested and under house arrest for a couple of years in Rome. And then years after that, we believe he was actually martyred in the city of Rome after being thrown in jail a second time. Uh, and so Paul will eventually spend a ton of time getting to know the folks in Rome. But as of the point of the writing of the letter to Romans, he has no contact with this church. However, he's been hearing some good things. He's been hearing what's going on. He's been hearing stories of everything that God's got them doing and working in and the success that they're having. And Paul sees the city of Rome and the church in Rome as this incredible ally to help him accomplish his calling, which is to take the gospel to all the places that don't have the gospel yet, to start churches in all the places that don't have churches yet. Specifically, he wants to get to Spain. Spain is on the other side of Rome from where Paul is currently sitting when he writes this letter. And so he wants the church at Rome to help him get to Spain. It's essentially a missionary support letter. Paul is asking them for help, not only as a hub of activity, but also funding to get him on to where he believes God is calling him to go. But to do that, man, Paul paints an absolute masterpiece. It is just an amazing piece of work. Romans is one of the most influential documents in in world history. And I don't mean that with any sense of hyperbole. It is easily one of the most influential documents in world history. Um, It's a letter to Romans that St. Augustine uh, in the early 4th century um, read and was converted by. St. Augustine is not only um, important in church life, but he's also kind of one of the founders of Western thought, Western philosophy. Western thought is Western thought because Augustine read Romans. Like, the way we see the world in the West is heavily influenced by the reading of the book of Romans. On top of that, uh, one of the most influential moments in world history is the Protestant Reformation. Many of you have probably heard of that. It happened in the early 1500s, right? Martin Luther, the guy that kind of kicked all that off. That, he, he was, he points to reading the book of Romans. He was, he was a professor at a seminary, all right? And his job was to teach the Romans that next term. And so he decided, you know what? I better read it. All right. And so in reading the book of Romans, he is converted, points to that moment as his true conversion experience, and it shaped his doctrinal positions as opposed to the Catholic Church, and that's what sparked the Reformation. And so, God has used the, the book of Romans in absolutely massive ways, right? And over the course of this series, we've been likening this masterpiece work by Paul to that of a skyscraper. Seems weird, right? Like, why would you compare 
a letter about missions funding to a skyscraper? Well, it's because skyscrapers are these superstructures made up of many parts, right? You build a piece, and then you put a piece on top of that, and you put a piece on top of that, and there's a lot of planning, and there's a lot of engineering, and there's all kinds of things that go into the skyscraper. You don't just lean a bunch of stuff, tall stuff up together, TP style, and call it a skyscraper and walk away. That, that's not a skyscraper. That's a problem, right? Like, that, that's, how, that's how accidents happen. Um, I've, I've got videos of when I was a teenager doing things exactly like that. All right? So here's the deal. Skyscrapers, though, man, there's a plan. And there's a, there's a goal in mind. And you, you dig deep and you anchor things and you set a foundation and you begin building piece by piece by piece by piece by piece. And even though everybody's ooing and eyeing at the pretty little antenna on top, all the real engineers in the room know what's, where the real work is going on, right? It's at the bottom floors. All the weight, all the structure is being supported somehow in this brilliant moment of design. And that's exactly like Romans. Paul spends a ton of time anchoring things to the foundation. Setting the ground floors of this is true and this is true as a logical argument. It flows from A to B to C and therefore to to D. And so Paul is building his skyscraper. Paul crafts a logical argument for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up him and others to take that gospel to the nations. That's the book of Romans and it's an absolute beauty. And in verse 12 of chapter 5, in verse 12 of chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore, time out. Some of you are laughing because you've been here. And the logical argument, therefores are important, aren't they? Right? He's, he's standing on the shoulders of something. Everything that Paul's about to say is based on, rooted in, empowered by everything he's already said. Alright? And so... You kind of stand on the shoulders of a logical argument and progression. And so in the last few weeks, well, as we looked at uh, Romans chapter 5, Paul has been talking about justification, right? Justification is to be declared right or declared innocent. That's what justification means. Um, uh, and so now you don't need to be declared innocent, though, if there's no charge against you. Like, like you're, it's just a normal Tuesday. Like, if you are innocent, no one needs to declare you innocent. That's just, you don't need that. So for a declaration of, independ- uh, of, of innocence to be needed, well, first we, we need to be charged of something, guilty of something. And so, well, those chapters leading up to chapter 5, Paul spends a ton of breath, a lot of ink, fleshing out that there is a charge against us, right? His argument is that all men, you, me, the lady next door you never talked to, That all men, all people are without excuse and stand before a holy God and will stand before a holy God as sinners deserving his wrath. That's the first four chapters of Romans. We learn in other places of the Bible that the just punishment for sin is a place called hell. And that left to our own devices, we have no hope of deserving anything other than that. That's his argument in the first four chapters of Romans. But we also learn in chapter 3 that he's not just just, he's justifier, right? He's not just just, he's justifier. We also learn that the righteous shall live by what? Do you remember? Faith, right? Jesus, God himself, steps in to our history and does what we, you and I, are incapable of doing. His sinless life, 
His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead are not symbolic stories to be, you know, try to emulate and just kind of celebrate a little bit. They actually purchase something for those whom He loves. They actually accomplish something. And so the last couple of weeks we've been learning that because of Jesus, peace, like for real at peace, peace with God has been purchased on our behalf. And we've learned that because of Jesus, access to the Father, which is not something we deserve, not something we can earn in our own way. In fact, it's something that, that needs to be taken from us if we had it to begin with. Right? We learned that access to the Father has been provided through Jesus. We also learned that hope, assurance, is birthed out of our justification, right? That's what we spent our time on the last few weeks. And, and none of this is our own doing. We, we learned last week that we are, the, we are the objects of God's love, not because we're awesome and because we bring something to the table, but precisely because we don't. It's precisely because we don't have anything to offer God that we are the objects of His love. We are the natural choice for God's amazing love, not because we're awesome, but because we're the opposite of awesome. The gospel is a reality. Because God desires to show off His love to the universe to the least deserving possible. That's the gospel. But this isn't some brand new reality. Some last minute contingent change in the eternal plan of God. We, we need a longer view of history. And so Paul says, therefore, right? Look what he says next in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all, what? Sinned. All right, so just as sin came into the world through one man, what, when, what one man is he talking about? Adam, right? The first two chapters of Genesis, we see the creation story told a couple of different ways. Uh, in chapter one, we see kind of the macro view. Uh, we, we get the, the whole of creation. And we, we're told the story of well, creation, like God creates sun, moon, stars, even light itself, right? He sets apart the firmament, right? We, we get this story. And, and so it's this massive bit of literature that unfolds the creation narrative. And at the pinnacle of this creation narrative is an image bearer of God, right? Man. But then chapter two kind of hits the replay button. Right, it backs up and tells the story again. But this time, instead of the macro level, it goes to the micro level. It zooms its focus in, right? And this time, we're told more specifically about the creation of man, right? We, he's formed out of the ground, and, and life is breathed in through the nostrils, right? It's this incredibly beautiful story. And then God gives this man a name. What's his name? Adam, which in Hebrew literally means man. Hebrew is the word for man. Or in Hebrew, Adam is the word for man. So I, I know I pick on Christians all the time in here about their lack of creativity when it comes to naming things. Started, We're just copying God, right? What am I going to call you? I know, man, that is your name. Just following God's example, that's all. So God creates man and woman. He places them in the garden with a mandate to be fruitful and multiply, right? In other words... Uh, Tend the garden, expand the garden, and have lots of babies while you enjoy the fruit of the garden. It is a good week. Really good week. Because Adam is an image bearer. He's unique among the rest of creation. And because of this mandate to have dominion over the rest of created things, it's Adam's job to ultimately be seen as a vice-regent to God himself. 
backup king, if you will. But you all know the story, right? Like, how long does that last? <laughs> like, Adam's job is to, to lead the rest, in crea- rest of creation in worshipful response to God. But then we get to chapter 3, right? Like, like, we just got finished telling the creation story, and now we're here. In a brand new world full of endless yeses and go enjoy yourselves, Adam has given one single solitary no. What is it? Don't eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you do, you will surely what? And that is the exact foothold. The exact thing that the serpent, the enemy in our story, uses to leverage a lie and a rebellion. He twists God's word, he plants doubt and distrust, and ultimately the simple act of eating a piece of fruit well, actually is something far bigger than a snack, right? In that moment, in that moment, the image bearer of God rejects God's reign over his heart and his life. He usurps God and he places himself on the throne and as the master of his own world. He becomes his own definer of good and evil. The first man who is given the name man, the image-bearing vice-regent tasked with leading the rest of creation in worship, sins. He sins. Paul says in verse 12 here, sin comes into the world through one man. It's introduced into a creation it's foreign to. And God's promise that death would surely come with it is exactly what happens, right? Death, according to a biblical worldview, is not natural at at all. It's a foreign enemy. It's an unwelcome invader to this world. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls it our last enemy. We we fear death, right? We we try to avoid it. We fight against it. We dream up ways to just try to escape it. We even have people going full Ted Williams and freezing their bodies in order that hopes that somebody might actually figure out a way to undo it later, right? Like, that's the world we live in. We're all trying to escape this thing. Death is an enemy. We all instinctively know that to be, the, to be true, to be the case. And the Bible comes along and says, you're absolutely right. It's not supposed to be this way. You're, you're right. It is an invader to this world. It is a consequence of a tragic moment. But um, I do have a question. Like, if, if Adam was the guy who dropped the ball, why do we die? Like, like it's Adam's fault, right? <laughs> like, if, I'm, if my kids are doing something at the house, and I think it's one of them, and I start getting onto that one of them, the other one's going to disappear, right? They'll, they'll let their, their brother or sister take the fall. But if I knew better and I buckle down on that one, doesn't that seem wrong to you? Like, why, why did we die? And Paul begins to flesh out this answer in verse 12. What does he say? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, comma, and so death spread to all men because what? Now, there are some who would look at this text and go, well, that makes sense. 
We sin too, therefore we deserve to die. Pish posh applesauce. Let's go. Close the Bibles. Go home, guys. I mean, Paul has built an argument up to this point, the first four chapters of Romans, that makes it explicitly clear, not just implicitly, explicitly clear that all men are guilty, that I'm as guilty as Adam was because I run headlong into sin, right? Paul makes that explicitly clear over and over again. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at at chapter 6, verse 23, where Paul says that the wages, the thing properly earned for sin is death, right? Like, that's, that's clear in the Bible. And so the lazy way of looking at this text would be to say, okay, we sin too, therefore we die too, move on. But it's lazy because Paul is not talking about our active involvement in sin right now. He's speaking of our passive involvement in sin right now. In other words, sin by association. What does that mean? Shelve it for a second. We'll come back to it. Look at verse 13. Paul says this, For indeed, uh, for sin indeed, excuse me, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, so we've talked about this concept in here before, right? Uh, a few months back when we were talking about Romans chapter 2, the law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all the commands following that, right? the law was given in order to reveal the rebellion that already existed in our hearts. All right, that's what Paul teaches in chapter 2. That, that when it comes to our guiltiness before a holy God, right, there's no difference between the Jew who had access to the law and the Gentile who didn't have access to God's law. All right, uh, because the law served to illuminate sin, not create sin. All right? The sin already existed in our heart. It, we didn't need the law to be guilty of sin. We needed the law to make us aware of our guilt. That's the distinction there that Paul talks about in chapter 2. Right? Um, there's a difference between those who are guilty, though, There's a difference between those who are guilty, though, of sin without an explicit command and those who knowingly and willingly transgress God's command. How does that work? How does that work? The one who doesn't know that they sin is still guilty of sin because the separation was was already there, right? If the law came to illuminate that rebellion, illuminate that separation, illuminate that attitude, both instances, those, those people have rightly earned God's wrath. But it doesn't follow. It doesn't follow that they have earned the exact same amount of God's wrath. Both have earned the punishment of hell but that doesn't mean that they've committed the same level of offense. We said a few months ago that the just judge of all the earth will account for that in his perfect justice, right? Like I, I told the story several months back, like, and again, it's a kid's story, but like it, there's a difference between my kid doing something rude and mean and, and like, like selfish and then me telling them over and over and over again that that's a selfish, rude, mean thing and them doing it anyways. Like there's a difference in the kind of talk we have after that moment, right? doesn't mean that the first time wasn't wrong. They're both wrong. 
but now there's an extra step, and it's called transgression, right? That, that's the difference between just normal sin and transgression. There's a, there's a willful act to step over a line. And back several months ago, we talked about this distinction between that the, the holy, just God will account for that in His ruling. And so in here in verse 13, we see that logic kind of brought back up again, right? Sin is not called sin where there is no law to define it, but God's law doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. It's an, it's an illumination of the reality of our hearts and the separation that exists between God and us. How do we know this to be true? Well, it's because death is an unnatural and otherworldly consequence of sin, right? And there are a whole bunch of people who died between Adam and Moses. So Paul says, right? So death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. There's, there's a lot of time between Adam in Genesis chapter 3 and the giving of the law to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, right? There's a ton of time between those two points, and there's a whole lot of dead people between those two points. Paul says death reigned during this time. That creates a question, though. It's quite a complicated question, I think. Um, if all of the explicit commands of God weren't given and didn't come until much later in the story, if the, the law was given to illuminate the core level rebellion already existing in our hearts, well, where did that rebellion come from? If the law was given to reveal what already was there, why is it there? In other words, what exactly is ground zero? The source of mine and others' rebellion against God. At the end of verse 14, the Apostle Paul points to who? Adam, right? Who was a type, he says, of the one who was to come. Because Adam was the first man, because he was the image-bearing vice-regent tasked with leading the rest of creation in worshipful response to their creator, Adam was given an explicit command. And he failed. He failed mightily. And because Adam failed, and because the vice regent stands as our representative, the Bible teaches that we inherit his failure and the consequences of that failure. By birth, we are all on team Adam. All of us. Me, you, the lady next door, you don't know. Theologians call this truth federal headship. Wait a second, is he talking about politics in church? Sort of. Federal headship. Remember back to your civics class for a second? What's a federal government? Federal government, when you have a bunch of semi-autonomous uh, things, in our case states, all right, you have a semi-autonomous thing, uh, things, plural, and they combine their efforts together for one group project, right? That's a federal government. And so we, as the United States, are a federal government, right? It's a centralized government made up of many autonomous, semi-autonomous parts, all right? And so we're called United States because we are a bunch of states who are united. See? See? We're not, secular folk do the naming thing too, right? You can use the word federal, though, for other things. It just means a bunch of individuals making up a whole. That's what federal means. In the case of theology, we can point to people and say, yep, 
semi-autonomous, but we have one representative head. According to Paul, Adam's failure is counted or imputed is the theological word, credited to the rest of humanity. Because Adam failed, we all fail. The whole ship's going down. I know that may be a hard thing to hear with modern ears. Especially in the state of New Hampshire, right? Like, for many of you, your knee-jerk reactions go, I didn't vote for Adam. Right? I didn't get a choice in this matter. You mean I'm stuck with his ineptitude? No damnation without representation, sir. And the live for your die streak, man, it runs all the way down our back in this part of the woods. We pride ourselves, puff up our chests with the fact that candidates, if they want to get any traction, they got to come to us first and prove their worthiness if they want to earn our vote, right? Isn't that the New Hampshire way? Informed voting is, you know, what's in it for me voting is just the way New Hampshire folks are. But there's a big old giant piece to the Adam as our representative puzzle that all the knee-jerkers fail to see. You see, you wouldn't have done any better. Not one bit. Adam walks in perfect relationship with God. How are you doing on that? Perfect relationship with God. He is uniquely vested among the rest of creation with authority and privilege and access to God that you and I don't have, right? Not, not only that, but the dude hangs out all week naked in a garden with his brand new wife. He's having a good day. He's living in a world without sin. Living in a world without con conflict. Living in a world with, with no outside limitations on his freedom and his pursuit of happiness. And he crumbles, absolutely crumbles under the pressure of a single, solitary no. You and I have a lot more no's on our plate. He had one and he failed. Adam has as good a shot as anyone could have had walking in faithfulness to the commands of God and he let us down tragically. Just like I would have let us down. Just like you would let us down. You're no better representative than Adam. And so acting like either one of us could have done a better job is really a failure to understand what Adam is working with and what we are working with. It's a failure to understand the situation. The problem is not that we have no control over who our representative is in righteousness before the Father. The problem is that we need someone far, far better than a mere human representative. We need a better team captain. An otherworldly federal head. As so Paul says that Adam was a type a lesser, incomplete version of the one who was to come. Who are we talking about? Jesus came and lived a life of obedience that neither you or I are capable of living. And it's, it's an understatement. 
Neither you or I are capable of living. He lived in perfect fulfillment to the commands of God. Uh, Matthew 3, we're told that he fulfilled all righteousness, right? Uh, whether, whether you've thought through it or not, Jesus's active obedience during his incarnation actually matters, right? Like, have you ever just wondered to yourself, why did Jesus come and hang out for 30 to 33 years? Like, couldn't he have just kind of like popped in for a weekend, done the whole cross and resurrection thing, and then popped back to heaven, had a great, great time? Got a lot done during that little long weekend. Like, couldn't he have done it that way? Like, why didn't Jesus just, you know, pop in for a short task and then disappear? Why was, why was the life necessary? We talk a lot in here about Jesus, the very end of Jesus' life. Um, and for good reason, the cross and the resurrection are two of, if not the most pivotal moments in all of history. Everything revolves around them. But the life of obedience that Jesus lived leading up to those events are what set the stage for them to matter. Otherwise, they don't. Jesus died as a substitute. As a perfectly sinless substitute. As a prove he could do it when no one else could sinless substitute. We talk about the gospel, or when we talk about the gospel in here, we're not simply focused on the cross. And, and even though it sounds better, we're not simply focused on the cross and the resurrection. With, without the active obedience of Jesus' sinless life, he would deserve death just like we do. He would deserve it. He couldn't pay the debt of sin on our behalf because it's a debt he would also owe. We, we need Jesus' sinless life. We needed him to come and do what we couldn't. But Adam, the guy who let us down, was only a type of the one who was to come, right? Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Uh, verse 16. For the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought, brought justification. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made what? Righteous. Okay, so even though Adam let us down, there's a better representative to stand on our behalf. That's what Paul's saying. Through the, even though through birth, by birth, we all belong to Team Adam, but through the, the free gift of grace, we can belong to Team Jesus. That's what he's saying in those five verses. That even though we inherit Adam's failure and the consequences of that failure, uh, even though we confirm that original sin in our heart every time we ourselves walk willingly in sin too, even though all of that is true, the, the righteous will stand by faith, right? The righteous will stand by faith. But that righteousness is not something that we bring to the table. 
It's not something that's inherent to us or offered up by us. It's not something intrinsically within us. It belongs to a better representative, doesn't it? Who credits it to our account. Those who have repented of sin and trusted in faith that Jesus is Lord, those who have laid down their attempts to exalt themselves and save themselves and whatever themselves and have instead placed their trust in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf, they are the ones who have made the jump from Team Adam to Team Jesus. They have a better federal head, a better representative who brings life instead of condemnation. Look at verse 18 again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Those who remain by default in team Adam receive the condemnation that they deserve. And those who belong by grace to team Jesus receive the life and justification that Jesus has earned. One really ought to consider joining team Jesus, right? Look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ or through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so the law is given to illuminate the reality of our hearts. It turns rebellion into outright trespass. And so, like, it wouldn't be unnatural to ask the question, well, why give the law then, right? Do we really need the law? Because if, if the law makes sin worse, if, if the law reveals the sin that's in our heart and causes us to move beyond just sin that's in our heart to actual transgression of God, God's law, like if that wouldn't be the case if God never gave the law, then like shouldn't God have just not given the law? Like wouldn't that have been better? It would have, it would have mean less sin, right? Paul's answer to that question is to point to the opportunity it also provides for God's glory. Where sin abounded, what does he say? Grace abounds all the more. This is not a comparison though. It's not a math problem. It's not like, a well, you see, what we'll do, we'll add a little bit more sin here so that we can add a little bit more grace here and balance out the scales. Look at all that grace. It's a superlative. Yes, a sin, sin abounded through the law, but have you seen God's grace? Oh, it abounds all the more. It abounds all the more. Yes, sin leads to death, but it also sets the stage for the grace of God to lead to eternal life. How great is our God. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're here. We should hang out sometime. But like, I think God would have you respond to his word today also. I don't think it's an accident that you're here. I think God would have you respond to his word. And I think you do that by repenting of sin and calling on Jesus as Lord. By default, you are on team Adam. You could act like you would have done a better job, but you won't. And you can't, and you will not. You could, though, just be honest with yourself and remember that you haven't done better. And you will not do better. But Jesus died as a substitute. As a sinless substitute. As a prove he could do it when no one else could sinless substitute. So when we talk about the gospel in here, we're not simply focusing on the cross, or even though it sounds better, on the cross and the resurrection. No, Jesus' active 
obedience to the Father is freely applied to those who trust in Him. Freely applied. His death is payment for your sin, but it can only be so because He first lived righteously for you. So you can respond to His offer of grace this morning through repentance and faith. And So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some... Or I'll be down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning, if that would help you take that next step of, of faith. But if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, like, can you respond to God's Word today? I think you can. I think you do that by repenting of sin and leaning into who God declares Himself to be in Romans 5, right? To, to become a follower of Jesus is to play for a different team. Full stop. Does the world know you do? Like, you made the trade, but did the world find out? Is your identity defined by a better federal head? Maybe that's how we respond this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. But let's all respond to God's Word today. Father, You are good to us. Thank You for Romans 5. Thank You for sending Your Son to be what I never could be. Not only to, to die and make atonement, to make payment for sin, but also to be the sinless sacrifice who could. As I look on my life, I look on my heart, as I look on the, the trajectories I follow and just the things that I desire and want and chase after, I am firmly convinced that Adam had a better shot than me. And if he failed, I would too. And I do every day. But Jesus came to be the one who would accomplish all things for us. Instead of the condemnation that I have rightfully earned and inherited, you bring life. Eternal life. You bring justification and righteousness and access to the Father, Jesus. So God, my hope and my prayer is that we respond faithfully to that this morning. As we sing, would you call your people to yourself? Would you help us see that it was not something that you needed from us that we're here? Because you are good. And you love with a great love. And you are mighty to save. And God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them this morning? Would you awaken eyes to see and hearts to know? Would you draw people to your kingdom today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.